Well, good morning. Great to see each of you here this morning. If you have your Bible, Nehemiah, if you want to begin to wake, make your way there through the next several weeks, we, be, we will be walking through this most excellent book of the book of Nehemiah. If we've not had a chance to meet just yet, my name is Jordan Johnson. I have the joy of serving as our lead pastor, one of our elders here at PVC. And if you're one of our PVC members, folks, then today's a big day for us as a body with regards to the launching of outside of here groups, so off-campus groups in homes. We're calling them connect groups. The goal is is for you to gather with a group of 10 to 12 people on a bi-weekly basis and joining and embodying Jesus to those in your group, sharing a meal or an appetizer, sharing fellowship, sharing prayer time. And then every week, starting next week, the questions that you're going to discuss in those groups will be in the bulletin. So our bulletin's going to grow a little bit. There's going to be an extra page there next week. The groups won't start until a couple of weeks, though. But I'm going to put next week the questions for next week's sermon in the bulletin next week as a way of swimming in the kiddie pool before we go to the deep end in a couple of weeks. So you can start looking at those questions and start to see, oh, this is the kind of questions that are going to be asked. And you can begin thinking through some of those. Our leaders right now are in process of meeting next Sunday afternoon and their spouses, and we're going to have a connect group quote-unquote practice, if you will. And the questions that you'll have next week, we're going to discuss in that leadership time next Sunday afternoon as a means to get our heads and our hearts in tune with the Lord, unified together, and then sign-up sheets are out there on the Welcome Center, and I hope that you'll know these are open to you, anyone who wants to be a part of these connect groups. And then here in a couple of weeks, as I said, the day will be set, and we will launch into this new path of gathering on a bi-weekly basis around the structure that we have in place. There's eight groups out there. Uh, six of them are not kid-friendly. Not that they don't love kids, but they're not designed to have childcare in, in part of them. Two of them provide childcare and are going to figure out the childcare situation. Special thanks to Andy and Meredith. Could you just wave Andy and Meredith if you don't know them? They've done a great job over the past few weeks of helping us get ready for this. And so we bless the Lord for you, Bidlins, and we are praying that everyone in our church will get behind this initiative that we believe God the Holy Spirit is leading in the life of this body. Well, if you're new with us, we are in week two of the book of Nehemiah. A brief prayer, and then we're going to jump in. Our Father, we are so grateful to be your beloved children. Thank you for our worship team who did such a great job this morning lifting our eyes heavenward, thinking about the fact that we are blood-bought, we are spirit-filled, we are right now being made more like Jesus, and that is a messy, long process. So I pray today that you would use your word to contribute toward a desire to be like Jesus. I pray that in Nehemiah we would see Jesus. I pray in Nehemiah that we would see what it looks like for an, a normal guy 
to get a vision of your greatness, have a burden placed on his heart, and then weep and fast and pray before you for direction and wisdom on how to move forward. I pray, God, that you would grant someone a Nehemiah moment today, today. They would leave here and say, I'm not okay with this. And God, you would birth in them a passionate pursuit to do what they got to do under your sovereign hand to get in the game, to get their hands dirty. We think about Nehemiah, but our eyes go further and think about the way Jesus left his palace and came and got his hands dirty for us. Ultimately, we don't want to be like Nehemiah. We want to be like Jesus. But we thank you for the way that Nehemiah is a picture of someone that we all can identify with. So would you open your word up to us? As we read it, would you allow it to read us? Pray we'd leave here today with a new pursuit, passionate for you. We ask it in Jesus' name. And we all said, prayer is essential for accomplishing a great work for the glory of God. Prayer is essential for accomplishing a great work for the glory of God. Prayer is not all that there is to do as a Christian, but without prayer, whatever it is that you do for God will be empty, will be lifeless, will be wooden, will be mechanical. So prayer is a prerequisite for God using you the way that He wants to use you to accomplish His cosmic plan in history and His will in your life personally. Throughout church history, what we find is prayer, spiritual renewal, and mission movements coming together. Prayer, spiritual renewal, and movements of people being mobilized with the gospel to cross cultures. You know, for God seems very pleased to use concerted prayer efforts of His people to spur and maintain spiritual awakening and then use those awakenings that He does through prayer in the hearts of His people to take the gospel that they have embraced, that they are now embodying, and they begin to engage outward with that gospel as a response of renewal to that personal realization of what they have in Jesus and a desire to go tell others what they too could have in Jesus. You know, a few stories make the connection of Prayer, renewal, and missions like a story from the 18th century. In the spring of 1727, during a season of internal turmoil in a community, a man by the name of Nicholas von Zinzendorf, Nicholas von Zinzendorf, what a great name, he looked out at his community in the middle 1700s. He saw the turmoil in his village, and he was not okay with it. 
He was not okay with the, the state of the church. He was not okay with the state of the people of God, particularly the Moravians, that he was a part of the Christian tradition of a Moravian movement. And by spring of that year, God put a passionate pursuit on his heart to start a prayer meeting and to call the people of God in that community to gather together and to pray, to pray namely for God to send revival to the people of God in that community. It started with 50 people. By the end of that summer, 1727, there's 50 people who have committed to pray for one hour for 24 hours. Those 50 people shared one hour, we're going to pray. And what we're praying for is for God to renew His people to prayer, to missions, to holiness, and for those 24 hours, that's what they committed to. Well, the result is God brought spiritual awakening to the Moravians. This group of 50 grew to 100, and then 150, and then 200, and 300, and hundreds of people were praying. And let me tell you how long this went on. 100 years. 100 years. I'm not talking about a week. I'm not talking about a month. I'm not talking about a year, I'm talking about 100 years, these hundreds of people got a vision of the greatness and the grandeur of God, the lack of spiritual uh, depth and vigor in the people of God, and they said, we're not okay with it. We're going to get on our knees and we're going to ask God to do what only God can do. And for the next 100 years, uh, the Moravians were used by God to utilize the power of God through prayer. They began to spread Christian piety amongst believers, and they began to spread the gospel amongst unbelievers. In fact, one man who was born out of this movement that we'll talk about in the weeks to come is a man named William Carey. William Carey was the father of the modern missions movement, and it all started really with this prayer movement. The movement started with this brother, Nicholas von Zinzendorf, who got a grander vision of the greatness and the awesomeness of God, and he called the people of God to pray and call upon their God to act, and he did. And I want to remind you, Nicholas von Zinzendorf was just a normal guy. He looks pretty astute there, doesn't he? But that's just how they dressed, as you know. But he was just a normal guy that God used to create a revival in that European context. So it is with Nehemiah. Nehemiah is an average guy, an average Jew, who God had given a passionate pursuit to do something great for the glory of God. Namely, God's going to use Nehemiah to rally the people of God to get to work and to start building and rebuilding the walls in Jerusalem. I remind you, the reason these walls are so important is because these walls are protecting ethnic Israel. These walls are protecting the Jews. And it is because how God used Nehemiah that the Jewish population was not extinct, for the Jewish population was a minority ethnicity. And God used these walls to protect them from the other nations so that Jesus could be born a Jew, so that Jesus could grow up a Jew, so that Jesus could live a perfect life for 33 years, die on a cross, be put in a tomb, rise from the dead, and in Jerusalem call the disciples to go and make disciples of all nations. And so we said last week, these walls initially were to keep people out, but in salvific history, they were actually there to let people in. So that Jesus would die, not just for Jewish people, praise God, because I don't know anybody in this room who's Jewish, 
But praise God, he died for every tribe and tongue and nation. And it's because of the work of Nehemiah rebuilding these walls that Jesus could be a Jew and ultimately secure the salvation that you and I are resting in today. So this is a massive work. This is a massive, big work. I don't think Nehemiah really knew how big it was. I think he kind of did. He knew how big his God was, but obviously he didn't know where history was going because he's not God, but he just played his part in the story. He just said, yeah, I'll I'll do it, Lord. Here I am, Lord. Send me. Now, we noted last week the person, Nehemiah. We looked at the place of Nehemiah, and we looked at the problem of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is an average guy. He's a cupbearer. So he, he drinks the wine, and he eats the food before it goes in the mouth of the king. We said last week, Nehemiah's job, drink up, eat up, and don't drop dead. And if that happens, the king says, I'll drink and I'll eat. If every king needed a Nehemiah, because the way that you would kill kings in this day is you'd poison their food, you'd poison their drink. And so it was a very risky job to be a cupbearer, but if you're a bit of a risk taker and you like to really make a pretty good salary and you like to live in opulence and sleep in the best places and eat the best food and the best drink, cupbearer is your kind of job. Because although it was risky, it was an opulence of living. 401k is great. The sick days are great. You can go on leave for a year. We're going to see in a minute. He asked for a year of being on leave. How many, how many of you, if you went to your boss tomorrow and said, I need a year of leave because God's put something on my heart? How many of your bosses would say, okay, go ahead? I would say, no, you, you need to start looking for another job if that's the case. But th- that, that's Nehemiah. He has, he has liberty in his job to just leave for a year and go pursue the will of God upon his life. What, 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 what an amazing thing. The very first thing Nehemiah does when he hears that the people of God and these walls are still not rebuilt yet is he doesn't freak out, he doesn't self-medicate, he doesn't complain. If he was in our day, he doesn't get on Facebook and post about it or get on Twitter and put something about it. He doesn't make a a reel about it uh, or a short of it or he doesn't get on YouTube and post a video. Let me tell you what's going on. He doesn't do any of that the very first thing that he does is he prays. He doesn't even put his overalls on and get to work. He's going to do some work, but right now he knows it's not the time to work. Right now is the time to pray. The first thing he does is pray. I want you to notice chapter 1 and verse 4 of our text. He says, as soon as I heard these words, these words that the walls are torn down, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days. He's like Jesus, friends. Luke 19, when Jesus looks at the spiritual state of Israel and he weeps over the city, Nehemiah is weeping. He's weeping not over the spiritual state, although they got, they got those problems. His main weeping is over the fact that the walls have been torn down and notice mourned for days. Now, what we have in the rest to the end of the chapter is we really have a summary of Nehemiah's prayer. We really have the the high points of the prayer. And I want you to notice that what we see in chapter 2, verse 1, notice, in the month of Nisan, chapter 2, verse 1, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. Now, remember from last week, Nehemiah got this news in the month of Kislev. In chapter 2, verse 1, now he's in Nisan. Kislev and Nisan are four months apart. So for the next four months, Nehemiah is weeping, he's praying, he's fasting before God. So Nehemiah, 
understood what you and I understand, having the whole canon of Scripture. And it is this, apart from God's grace, I can do nothing. Apart from the enabling power of God, I can do nothing. Listen, about 10 times in 13 chapters, it's going to say, and Nehemiah prayed, and Nehemiah prayed, and Nehemiah prayed, and Nehemiah prayed. He, he just keeps peppering God with these requests, peppering God. You're going to see as he's, as he's uh, examining the walls here in a few chapters, it'll say, and he, he prayed to his God. It's like he's just walking and looking, and, and he's praying in his mind. He's got his buddies beside him, but as he's talking to them, he's giving them instruction, but in his heart and his head, he's praying to God. You ever been there where you're having to orchestrate something out here, talking to someone, but on the inside, you're asking God for grace and wisdom of how to go forward? That's what Nehemiah does, and he does it over 10 times in 13 short chapters. Nehemiah does not fall prey to many of the tendencies I fall prey to and you fall prey to when God puts a passionate pursuit on your heart. There's three things I want you to write down that you and I will often knee-jerk to when we have something God has put in our heart to do. Number one is we get self-sufficient, self-sufficiency. These three things are going to kill your prayer life. Number one is self-sufficiency, thinking, I can do this on my own. Nehemiah understands. I am not smart enough. I am not strong enough. I don't have enough wisdom to pull this off. I don't have the education. I don't have the degree. I don't have the personality. I don't have the background. I don't have any of that stuff. And, and, and yeah, he was probably well-educated to be where he's at, but he said, I'm not calling on that. I am God-dependent. I am not self-sufficient. Second of all, self-satisfaction. Self-satisfaction. Nehemiah doesn't look around Jerusalem and say, well, you know, quesera, quesera. What's going to be is what's going to be. They're down. I can't do anything about it. I hate that they're going through that. One day I know God's going to raise somebody up to deal with that. He doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. He says, no, God, you've got a part for me to play. And the first thing I need to do is not get my overalls on, <laughs> but I need to get to praying and say, God, what do you want to do? Third of all, self-righteousness, self-sufficiency, self-satisfaction, self-righteousness. No, we're going to see this soon. He's going to confess his sin. He knows that he's coming to God, not on the state of his goodness, but on the state of God's sheer mercy toward him. Now, one thing we should note from Nehemiah is Nehemiah has a mature prayer life. It's one thing when you read the book of Nehemiah, you should take away. This man knew how to pray. This man had a mature prayer life. And I want to tell you this, you have room in your current status of your prayer life to improve. Amen? Isn't prayer one of those things that… I was talking to Ember in the wee hours of the morning this morning, like, prayer is one way to humble somebody, is to say, how's your prayer life? It's humbling. Because I don't know anybody that's really telling the truth to say, it's awesome. It can't improve at all. Yeah, it may have improved some. But I would say that until Jesus comes, this whole thing of praying is going to be totally spirit-dependent on the job training. And Nehemiah is a case in point of that. With regards to the quantity, this man's constantly praying. Second of all, the quality, what he's praying. Not just how much he's praying, the quantity, but the quality of his prayers. And I would say when you think about your prayer life, Jordan, how do I measure mature prayer life? Look at your quantity and look at your quality. Look at how much you pray and look at what you pray. How much you pray and what you pray. 
Uh, you could pray a lot, but your prayers be pretty shallow. Or you could pray some very meaty prayers, but you do it like once a week at dinner time. So you've, you and I have got to learn how to cultivate a prayer life that is quantitatively and qualitatively healthy. And I think in Nehemiah, we see that. You know, when the disciples asked Jesus, teach us to pray, it wasn't because they had never seen anyone pray before. They're Jewish for crying out loud. They knew the mechanics of praying. But they saw in Jesus a qualitative and a quantitative reality that they had just never seen before. And they said, Jesus, will you teach us how to do that? Will you teach us how to come before God the way you do? Will you teach us how to depend upon the Father the way that you do? And you remember Jesus says, well, when you pray, this is really not the Lord's prayer, by the way. It's not a really good way to say it. It's really the disciples' prayer. Jesus says, when you pray, pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your will be done. The, Lord, the, the disciples' prayer is a God-centered prayer. That same substance that Jesus taught the disciples to pray with is really the substance, substantive nature of what you're going to see here in the prayer life of Nehemiah. You're going to see him throughout his time pray a lot, but he's going to show you right here how you should pray. What should be the chronological order in one sense of your prayer? Let's look at this together. Five short parts, all right? First of all, motivation. Motivation. That's the first point there. There's the motivation. What's motivating Nehemiah? Notice chapter 1, verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept for days. Now, you know now, four months. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So God is the one who is motivating Nehemiah's prayer. Let me remind you, these walls have been down for 141 years. 141 years. And actually, the rebuilding of the walls had already started. If you read the book of Ezra, chapter 4, Ezra began a, a campaign to rebuild these walls. But there's a lot of red tape in Ezra. There's a lot of bureaucratic tape. You know, when you get ungodly politicians and letters are sent and things are going on, that's what's going on in Ezra. Do this, don't do this. And the enemies of God do not want these walls to be rebuilt. And you're going to see those same enemies will pop up a little bit later. But these walls have been down 141 years. Nehemiah probably has an understanding that they've been down. It would sort of like be if I came into this room right now and I, and I announced to all of you, church, Abraham Lincoln died. And then I just started weeping. You, either you'd be like, man, he's a pretty patriotic guy. Or you'd be like, I mean, Jordan, that was a hundred and something years ago. We've kind of moved on. Like we, Abraham Lincoln was great, but we kind of moved on from that. Yet for some reason on this day, September 17th, I stood up and it just hit me. That's what's going on in Nehemiah. For all these hundred and so odd years, he's known about this. And yet right now is when God's grace hits him. And he's like, I, I, I got to do something. Now God does that sometimes does he not? He's done it in my life before. I mean, you think about the orphan crisis in the world, and you hear about it. Maybe you go to a Compassion International conference of some kind, and you hear about what's going on in places of kids that don't have food and clean water. Maybe, maybe you see Operation Christmas Child, and all of a sudden you're like, wow, I can't believe the 
the, what's going on in these countries and yada, yada, yada. Maybe you see human trafficking, racial injustice, global lostness, people without clean water. And at some point, you knew about that in theory, but God breaks your heart for it in the moment. And that's called a Nehemiah moment, by the way, a Nehemiah moment. A Nehemiah moment is really when something you knew in theory becomes personal to you. You knew this was an issue in theory, but now it's personal to me. I got a, I got a heart for guys to step up and be the husbands God's called them to be or the wife, some issue. And now it's become your issue because God has burdened you with a passionate pursuit to say, I'm rolling my sleeves up. Actually, I'm not. I'm going to pray. <laughs> and then I'm going to roll my sleeves up and I'm going to play my, oh, I pray that God would give you eyes to see what that is. It's a place some of us need to go and you keep saying no to God. It's a meeting that you need to arrange and have with somebody. It's an email that you need to finish, brother, and write it out and send it. Hit, hit send. It's a book you may need to write. It's a degree maybe you need to acquire. Maybe you need to go back to school. You say, I'm however many years old. Okay, God is sovereign. He's God, you're not. If He's calling you to do this and you're not, you're not equipped to do it, you better go get equipped so you can do it. That's your Nehemiah moment. It motivated him. God is the motivation of Nehemiah and his prayer. Second of all, notice adoration. Not just motivation, but adoration. This is his prayer. Nehemiah's prayer does not begin with a, 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 a laundry list of requests. God is not a pinata, friends. You don't just keep hitting him and hitting him until the goodies fall out. He is God. He's to be feared. He's to be worshipped. Prayer begins with worship. Notice verse 5, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God. I love how Nehemiah acknowledges the greatness and the awesomeness of God. By the way, this is language that the Persians would use to describe their God, their pantheon of gods. And Nehemiah hijacks it from them, the Persians, and he supplants them saying their God is great and awesome, and he says, you fools got it wrong because the God of Israel, he is the one of heaven. He is the great and awesome God. Nehemiah says, God, you're awesome. Now, if there were ever a word that we overuse, it would be the word awesome, right? Everything's awesome. This coffee is awesome. This chicken's awesome. These fajitas are awesome. This person is awesome. This car is awesome. But let me tell you something. If, everyone, if everything is awesome, nothing is. It's kind of like if everybody gets a blue ribbon, nobody does, right? The word awesome means to cause dread or terror. I don't know about you, but I never ate a piece of chicken that caused me to fear. I've been around some pretty stature, staturally strong people, but I never walked away from there shaking in my boots. Watch how you use words. I'm not going to be legalistic about this and be like, hey, only God is awesome. But I'm just saying the principle here is recognize that only God is awesome. Only God is the God who should make you be afraid. Afraid in the sense of, namely for the Christian, afraid of disappointing Him because of how awesome He is and how graciously He has worked in your life. 
But see, I want you to see here that Nehemiah transitions from the bigness of God, he's great and awesome, and notice now he goes to the tenderness of God, not just the awesomeness of God, but the tenderness of God. Notice, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who keep His commandments. And friends, this is what we do. In response to God's love for us in the gospel, we love Him back. That's what we do. We don't love God or keep a bunch of rules to try to make God love us. That's ridiculous. You could never do that. I could never do that. But the reason that we obey the commandments and the reason that we fear God is because we've been loved by God. And the fact of being loved by God motivates me to want to love Him back. Well, how do you do that? By keeping His commandments. This is a covenant-keeping God. God always keeps His promises. Please notice as well that Nehemiah's theology here, it leads him to adoration. It doesn't lead him to a fat head. It leads him to get on his face in adoration before God. Let me tell you something, you theologues among us, you, I like to study theology. Well, I'm glad you do. But if your theology is not causing you to get prostrate before your God in adoration and worship, then you have a bad theology. Theology is not made to get your head fatter, but get your heart set ablaze at the awesomeness. So study theology. Theology is meant to lead to worship. Remember this, informed heads create hearts that are ablaze. Many people have a great theology, but it's all up here. It has not reached to their will, to their heart, this, this will be a great word, to their affections. They don't have great affection for God. Although, if they took a theology test right now, they'd probably miss one or two, but their heart is not stirred. That's not, that's not Nehemiah. This man's on his face before God. This is what I love about the great writers of the past. A lot of people look at some of these authors, Jonathan Edwards and Calvin and all these ones, and they oh, those are just like wooden guys sitting in some room somewhere with a little candle burning and just, you know, ethereal, have erudite, theology. No, if, if you read Calvin's insight, he is, he is worshiping God as he's writing. Any theology that is worth its salt is going to produce adoration, and if it doesn't, something's wrong with your understanding of who God is. Because when you see God for who He is, or when your understanding of Him gets bigger, it makes you get lower in worship before Him. Can somebody say amen? amen. Third of all, confession. This is where it leads. Verse 6, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you, even I and my father's house have sinned. Verse 7, we have acted corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. So when you ponder the greatness of God and you come to grips with the tenderness of God, the natural response is you're going to confess sin. Notice he confesses two sins here, the sins of the people and his own personal sins. There's a corporate solidarity here that Nehemiah has. Nehemiah is not, oh, it's just me and God, me and my relationship with God. No, he's connected to a greater reality than himself. 
He realizes I'm connected to the covenant people of God. And because of that, Nehemiah says, it's not just about me and my sin. It's about our sin. It's about our corporate disobedience. And let me tell you something. Nehemiah doesn't even live in Jerusalem. And yet, he feels the weight of how the sins of the people of God have offended her God. And he says, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to stand behalf, on behalf of the whole nation and say, we, God, we have blown it. We have blown it. We confess our sin against you. Notice verse 7, we have acted very corruptly. Notice against you. You should underline that word in your Bible, against you, 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 you. Notice Nehemiah says, you, God, are who we've sinned against. You. My friend, you cannot make progress in the Christian life unless you have a thorough rhythm of repentance in your life. If you wonder right now why your passion for Jesus is not where it should be, or maybe not where it used to be, I want to ask you, how much time have you spent on your face before God repenting of sin? Repenting and confessing. Confession is to acknowledge it's a sin. Repenting is to change the course of your life and go a different way than the sin that you just confessed. Luther was right. Luther was right when he said the Christian life from beginning to end is a life of repentance. And and, and the good news of the gospel is if you'll come to God, there's no sin He won't forgive you of. There's no sin He won't forgive you of. Therefore, there should be no sin that you do not confess. I I get very concerned, as as the pastor of our church, I get concerned, how much time are you all spending in confession of sin? How much time are you spending before God and pouring your heart out before Him, asking the Holy Spirit to do an MRI on your heart and say, Holy Spirit, show me the ways in which I am not walking in the way before God that I should. And then you know what? Just be quiet. Just stop talking. I know it's hard for some of us, but just stop talking. And let Him show you. And then do what He said. Against you have I sinned. I have not loved my wife like I should. I have not loved my husband like I should. I have not walked in the fruit of the Spirit like I should. And did you know nobody's responsible for your bad attitude but you? Stop telling everybody else they're the reason you act like you act. Go to God. He's the first offended party. Yeah, you shouldn't talk to her that way. That's terrible. But God is more offended than she is because He's your God. When the prodigal son comes back in Luke chapter 15, do you remember what he says to his father? He says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and you. Notice where he starts. I have sinned against heaven. Heaven is the primarily offended party, and Nehemiah says, I realize that we've done some bad stuff, but we've done it all against our God. Don't blame shift. Don't say it's somebody else. That's as old as the garden. This is the woman you gave me. This is the man you gave me, and so on, and so on, and so on, and so forth. This is what we're looking for, by the way, in child evangelism. When we're looking to see if a child really understands the gospel, what we really want to see is, do they understand they have offended God? They have offended God, and they are responsible for putting Jesus on the cross. If they don't get that, they cannot be saved. So don't just have them repeat prayers or say things. Oh, we had three or four people pray the prayer. Well, the question is, do they they really understand the gravity of their own sin before a holy God and the fact that Jesus accomplished everything to make them right with God, but they must turn from it and they must receive Christ? 
same gospel that saves a 98-year-old is the same gospel that saves a seven-year-old. It all starts with understanding the, 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 the adoration, the holiness of God, which leads to the confession of sin. And then I want you to notice the affirmation. There's a pardon here. That's why you'll notice in our liturgy and our service, after we get done confessing, do you notice John will always pray a prayer of thanking God that we are forgiven? We're, we're, we're affirming ourselves before God, the fact that we have sinned, we have confessed, and we stand in a righteousness that is not our own. And then we say, oh, how marvelous is His love for me. You see that progression? So, so important. So important. But notice the affirmation in verse 8. Remember, this is Him talking to His God. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. And you know this is what happened to the whole nation. This is why they got exiled, because they did not follow the statutes of their God. Nine, but if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I've chosen to make my name dwell there. Now, that had happened, by the way, remember? They had been restored to Jerusalem. They're restored not back to a place of prosperity, but they at least have a city now. They, they have a temple now, remember? The walls are getting built. It, it, it's happening. Notice 10. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Notice what he's saying. You redeem them, Lord. You redeem your people. You claim them. God, you knew what you were getting when you got them. They are yours. Friends, we can pray with confidence to God. You know why? Because we're His. Prayer is an invitation from a loving father to his children. Prayer is a loving invitation from a father to his children. We come to God on the basis of the gospel. We come to God on the basis of Jesus being our Savior. We are redeemed. We are adopted. We are affirmed. We are His. And that's why we pray in Jesus' name. We don't pray in your name. You don't pray in my name. You don't pray in a priest's name. You don't pray in anybody's name. Because there's one name given under heaven by which people can be saved. It is Jesus. When you pray in Jesus' name, that gives you authority to go before the throne of grace. It's not just an addendum or some Christianese we just say. Praying in Jesus' name is what gives you the authority and the joyous privilege to go to the holy God of the universe and know that He's not just listening, but He hears you. You know why? Because you're His kid. You're His kid. So, affirmation. Finally, supplication. Supplication is asking. Supplication is asking. So, motivation leads to adoration which leads to confession, which leads to affirmation, which finally, notice 11, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear in your name. Now, I've been camped out on that phrase all week long, delight to fear in your name. I don't know about you, but I'm busy. Anybody else? I'm busy. There's a lot going on here at the church that is really, really exciting. Um, probably like you, I'm really excited about kids' ministry and women's ministry and connect groups and 
adding new members, starting a new sermon series, adding additional pastoral staff in the days ahead, and, and just looking at all the components and just the fresh wind that the Lord has blown into the life of this body. I'm, I'm excited about all of that. And then outside of here, I'm excited and busy with our own family. As many of you know, Ember's just started a new job at Southwest General, and it's going so well. Thank you for your prayers. Little brother just started the Goddard School in Strongsville. Um, off to a good start. Eden's thriving in first grade. All is going well there. On top of that, I'm taking a really heavy Hebrew class on the backside of a degree to finish up. Just a lot going on. And, and you know what I've realized? That I have to make life really simple. Because I'm a doer by nature, probably like you. I get up every day motivated and downright dedicated. And I can knock some stuff out, I tell you. But I can knock it out and it not be done with the grace that God has provided me. And so I love this phrase because life should be simply, Lord, in my life, in my family, in our church, help us delight to fear in your name, whatever that looks like. And see, Nehemiah feels the weight of this assignment, and he is single-mindedly saying, Lord, I delight to fear in your name. Now, he despises the fact that these walls have fallen down, and he realizes, I need God's help. And he's going to go to the king, and he's going to ask the king, would you undo the decree that you made that the walls could not be built? Remember, this is the same king that said, don't rebuild the walls. Nehemiah is going to go back to that king and say, would you undo it? Would you undo what you already said and let us go build these walls? See, he knows Proverbs 21.1, Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. This king is no king that can outmatch God. This is good news. Changing hearts is God's specialty. Maybe your assignment right now is a rebellious teenager, a wayward child. Maybe it's a friend that you're praying desperately for. Maybe it's someone who is very far from God. Maybe it's a crisis that you're trying to figure out to intervene in. Maybe it's someone who's really close to the kingdom of God. They say they're a believer. They say all the right things about the gospel. But their lifestyle and the, and the things that God is calling them to do and forsake, they're like, I'm not doing that because I don't want to do it because I like it too much. And you're just like, Lord, are they saved? Are they not saved? What am I supposed to do? And, and, and you feel the weight of that. Take courage from Nehemiah. God conquers hearts. He turns hard hearts however he will. Hudson Taylor, a great missionary, said this, and, and I quote, it is possible to move men through God by prayer alone. It is possible to move men through God by prayer alone. We see that in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah praying here. God has chosen to use this prayer to accomplish his will by turning the king's heart the way that he wants it to go. It's amazing. You know, our prayers expose what we believe about God. Did you know that? Your prayers expose what you believe about God. And what you see about Nehemiah is he had a great vision of God. He had a big God. The substance of this prayer, friends, it's very instructive. I want to encourage you this week in your prayer life. Think through the, through the themes of motivation, adoration, confession, affirmation, and supplication. And this reminds us, as we close here, what we said, that prayer is essential for accomplishing a great work for the fame 
of God's name. Now, Nehemiah stands in a great line of many great intercessors. Thank Elijah, thank Moses, thank David. These men interceded powerfully on behalf of the people of God. But let me tell you something, friend. There is no intercessor like the Lord Jesus. There is no intercessor like the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus in John 17, which is really the Lord's Prayer, in John 17, He said, John 17, 4, I accomplish the work that you sent me to do. You, you and I, friends, we have a greater leader than Nehemiah. We have a greater teacher than Ezra, who himself came and fulfilled the law. What do we learn from Nehemiah? We learn that Nehemiah prayed, we should too. Nehemiah worked, we should too. But what saves us is not our prayers. What saves us is not our working. What saves us is the fact that Jesus prayed and Jesus worked. And he finished his work. And right now, the Bible says, he lives to make intercession for you. So friend, you may have it hard this week, but guess who's praying for you? Jesus is praying for you. He's giving you grace. He's walking with you. He's demonstrating his power. And I remind you, he used to be, a, or he sat at the Father's right hand and left that palace, did he not? Just like Nehemiah looked out, saw the pain, left the palace, Jesus did the exact same thing. And he came, he got his hands dirty, he, and he is rebuilding the people of God right now. He's rebuilding us, and he's rebuilding us to take us to a new Jerusalem. A new Jerusalem that you and I will dwell in. There is no sin, there is no shame there. May the book of Nehemiah inspire us and remind us of our great Savior King. May the Lord Jesus this week help you understand the passionate pursuit that he's called you, that you would go to him in prayer and let him drive you as we watch and continue to see his grace through our man here, Nehemiah. Pray with me. Our Father, we love you. Thank you for loving us. We approach you on the basis of your mercy by the work of another, our Lord Jesus. We pray as we stare into another week that as busy as we are, that we would live to delight fearing your name. Help us remember that Nehemiah prayed, and we should too, that Nehemiah worked in the chapters to come, and we should too. But Lord, help us do it all as a response to the fact that you love us in Jesus. Help us be people this text instructs us to be, to find our motivation in you, which leads to our adoration of you, which calls us to come before you in confession and repentance. Thank you that you've affirmed us in the gospel, that if we need to know what we think of you or what you think of us, Father, we just need to look to Jesus. Because in Jesus, we have been fully, forever, finally forgiven. Help us this week. Help us, Lord, to spend time dwelling on your great name so that we might live for the fame of that great name and invite others to do the same. Thank you that in the end, Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. So help us love people, love, truly love people, and let you do the heart changing. We ask it in his precious name. As we stand, could we respond? and singing.